0: So, this kind of occurred to me almost a little too late in our timeline, but it kind of worked out perfectly. It it kind of I was I forget what I was watching. It I don't even think it was something for this project, but I was like, "Oh, wait, movies themselves have now entered the timeline of world history, and we would be remiss not to discuss that." And then the movie Hugo is basically set the same year as Cabaret, so it fits perfectly in our timeline because spoiler alert in Hugo, it deals with director George Melies in his later years, but gives us an opportunity to talk about the history of film and his role specifically in it. H- had you seen this one before?
1: No, nope, this is my first time. So yeah, I was I uh, I really liked it. I thought it was a very cute movie.
0: Yeah, and it's one too, so this is the second time I had seen it. I remember, I mean, I, I enjoyed it well enough the first time, but I think I Probably overly dismissed it because it was kind of more intended for children. And I didn't really know, anytime you watch a movie for the first time, you don't know where it's going. And so you kind of make some of your assessments based on what maybe you had expected. And so I thought the twist of making George Méliès this kind of character who's initially the antagonist was a weird out-of-nowhere twist but when you kind of sit down and watch the movie a second time and you know like that's actually kind of what the overall thing is about is this kid's discovery of a long lost george melies in a way i was like kind of even tearing up and i just i just found it way more impactful than i did the first time and I've forgotten how much Oscar success it had, at least nomination-wise. It was nominated for, like, 11 Academy Awards, and uh, including Best Picture, and is, of course, a Martin Scorsese movie, and just so different than everything else he's done. But you can just definitely see his oh masterful touches throughout that it's it's very well directed
1: yeah and i was kind of the same way i i just i had never watched it um kind of dismissed it because i thought it was just like a a goofy little kid movie about you know sasha baron cohen chasing some kid around a train station or something right and based on the trailers you know that they obviously they they don't really go into the the twist in the trailer so i had no idea that it was had anything to do
0: with the first the first movies right so you were more like me the first time i saw it yeah right so I kind of want to bounce around a different, a couple different ways here. So we are going to talk about the film before we get into George Melies himself. But just because of how he highlights Paris and the fact that our main character, Hugo, is basically in charge of keeping the clocks in this Paris train station running, I actually wanted to start with a few things on Paris and on watches themselves. So... Two quick notes, just so they do kind of just very much highlight out the window there that Hugo sees the Eiffel Tower and also also the Arc de Triomphe. So the Eiffel Tower was built in 1889 for the World's Fair, which actually timed out with the 100th anniversary of Bastille Day for the Paris World's Fair that year. And I didn't realize, I was kind of looking like, I was going to research when was the last World's Fair only to realize they actually still happen did you know that
1: um i mean i i knew that they had like through this like the 70s and 80s i think i right, seen right yeah but yeah. i i didn't yeah i guess i didn't realize that they still happen is it every year
0: so it looks like it's every other year now and so it also looks like the term world's fair was kind of more of an americanism anyway and they were more worldwide called uh, expos and are called expos now today so the term world's fair isn't really used anymore so maybe that was part of our confusion and uh, their origins are basically kind of what they still are today it was just an idea for people throughout the world to come together and share what their country has been working on which i think was obviously probably a much bigger draw and you know obviously the common folk like ourselves would probably be flocking to these if there was one nearby and we were able to go just to see the coolest things happening in the world versus today it's probably more for the inventors and artists themselves that are getting together. And we'll just see it on the internet or something, I guess, if there's something worth, right. uh, worth noting. Or we would have heard about it before the exhibition itself, just because of the way communication works today. So I was kind of surprised to see that they still exist. But it even has like the ones that are scheduled up all the way through 2025. And I guess the most recent one was in Kazakhstan a couple years ago. And yeah, they uh, they still exist. And then the other prominent uh, Parisian structure there is the Arc de Triomphe, and that was actually commissioned to celebrate Napoleon's victory at the Battle of Austerlitz, which is where Bill and Ted kidnapped him, was at that battle that uh, was the inspiration for the Arc de Triomphe. Now, it actually took a few decades to finish, so it it wasn't finished until 1836, long after Napoleon had been booted, but I guess uh, in 1840, they did do a sort of dedication, and Napoleon's remains were actually allowed to pass through the arch before they uh, put him in his final resting place in Paris, which I guess I didn't realize he was even buried in Paris. I think I thought he was still maybe on uh, Elba or Saint... Oh, I forget the two islands he was exiled to. But yes, anyway. So then... Uh, I wanted to do a little more on time pieces. So I kind of think what's really cool about this movie just kind of thematically and aesthetically is how they tie together these things that you wouldn't really necessarily think about being tied together nowadays. So the idea that Hugo and his father are very much clock people and the idea of using gears and just how everything works within a clock and just the mechanical process and, and honestly just the idea that a lot of these things... Didn't require electricity now his clock here in the station may have, but just the idea that we've had watches for centuries before they actually used electricity and just the, how the gears work. I, I
1: don't think it did because it it showed him cranking up that giant weight exactly
0: okay so i'll I'll get yeah, I'll get to that and and how that parallels with Toy making, and he get you know he fixes the little mechanical mouse for Papa George, and then of course you know ties into just special effects and the automaton and just the little ways that hey we had machines pre electricity was kind of fascinating to me. So I wanted to look up the history of watches, mechanical watches, but also timekeeping in general, and I kind of came across a couple of interesting things that definitely are worth mentioning as part of this project and part of world history. So the first is and I I guess I wasn't super familiar with this. So the idea of using a oh what they called it like a basically using 60 as our base number for not just timekeeping but also angles and also you know latitude and longitude. Dates back mm-hmm. to the Sumerians, and then the Babylonians used it as well. And it has to do. I, I, I found. Okay, I, I just watched a YouTube video on this like half an hour ago, and I found it kind of fascinating. So, with one hand, okay, so I have, <laughs> I have my four fingers in my in my thumb, and I'm looking at my right hand here. And each of my four fingers has three segments to it. And so, with my thumb, I could kind of point to like the tip of my pinky, and then the middle section of my pinky, and then the base of my pinky, and go through each finger with three. Segments each, so twelve total segments. And then with the other hand, I can count how many times I've done that up to five. Five times twelve, which is sixty. And you can basically keep track of all that on your hands. And then also, it's kind of unique that sixty is, I guess, like the smallest number that is evenly divisible by two, three, four, five, and six without any any fractions there. So it's kind of the special number that was just decided thousands of years ago was a good way to divide up minutes and seconds. And then, of course, then getting into geometry and other things like that. So I kind of thought that was interesting and something I hadn't really heard of before. And is that how historians think that that came about? Or is that actually like a
1: matter of record that that's how the Sumerians counted things?
0: Good question. The way it was presented in one particular YouTube video seemed to be that they were confident. But yes, and obviously those were some of the civilizations that were early in the in the writing game, so I, I would imagine it's possible there was uh, records a- along with that, but yeah, it could just be an educated guess yeah, to be sure. And then clocks kind of evolved from obviously everyone's familiar with sundials. Uh, the couple different types of clocks before we get into the mechanical ones uh, that you're less familiar with are water clocks and candle clocks, basically using a regular drip of water to keep track of time. and has whether whether you're filling something or making it move something, or then candles that just burn at a regular interval so you can basically wake up at the middle of the night and be like okay two and a half candles have burned since i went to sleep so i know what time it is and ways to keep track of the time of day when you don't have the sun to make a sundial worthwhile and then hourglasses were, were used obviously just kind of you know the regular pour of a sand into one from one side to another but the mechanical clocks date back to The 11th century uh, got popularized in the 14th century, and were largely just used within you know churches and the big clocks that they had. And you kind of hinted at it; they're all kind of basically just operated by either some combination or uh, use of yet pendulums, counterweights, and balance springs—basically just things that are able to get the gears moving, literally. And obviously didn't require electricity because they didn't have it then. But were just a way to kind of keep motion useful and and regular. And then you kind of get into your first. You know, pocket watches in the 1800s, actually, hang on, first pocket watches actually were in the 15th or 16th century and kind of got more more popular. Uh, you know, there's, there's like a balance spring that's in a pocket watch. So you basically have this kind of same regularity of smaller gears just because you have this tiny little spring that just kind of basically works like a mini pendulum inside of a pocket watch, which again, I don't fully understand. And then wristwatches were kind of popularized at the beginning of the 20th century and used en masse by soldiers during uh, uh, World War One and, and 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 pilots just because it was super convenient to glance quickly at a watch on your wrist versus having to dig a pocket watch out of your out of your pocket. So that kind of was uh, everything I wanted to talk about on that no reason to get ahead of our timeline with uh, quartz and atomic clocks although quartz watches were invented in the 1930s which is about where we are in our in our timeline and and they actually work on the same kind of idea that quartz when you stimulate it with electricity vibrates at a regular predictable rate that allows for excellent timekeeping that was basically unrivaled until the atomic clocks uh, were invented in the about the 70s I guess.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of like uh it's kind of like extra relevant that we see these clocks in the movie at least in a train station. Oh, yes. Cuz I, I believe that that was one of the driving factors behind time zones, the first time zones. And keeping a universal time like across the well, universal time, uh UTC or, you know, Zulu time, you know whatever you want to call it, Greenwich Mean Time. Yes. Cuz they, you know, for for travel by railroad, if a train was going to leave somewhere and then arrive somewhere else, people in both places had to know what time it was. Um, you know, you couldn't just have your time for your town be, oh, it's whatever time the clock tower says, um, and to, everything had to be synced up.
0: Right, which, which all goes back to the idea of noon is when the sun is directly overhead, and that's what your sundial would have said. And then, yes, a town 30 minutes away might be a couple minutes behind or ahead, and then you had to regulate the, the train stations, which actually that, that ties into the whole idea of, daylight savings time and there's a bigger and bigger push now to get rid of the time change we have twice a year and yeah, it's ridiculous we don't need it you we don't need daylight savings time or we don't need to get rid of it
1: yeah no i'm a I'm a, pro- I'm a proponent of getting rid of it
0: okay i don't necessarily disagree with that at all but my problem is they don't want to keep the real time they want to keep daylight savings time and not change back to real time does that make sense well, I mean, would would it matter? What would the difference? Well, okay, be? And no, but this is kind of this is to my point because it goes back to the whole idea of sundials. Because so, we, we, my guess is we kind of switch it back in the in the winter because that way we're actually hitting the new year at the quote unquote correct time. But that's the one that's based off of noon being overhead, and then we kind of shifted the summer time. Of course, that's ever more in the early spring and or, or late spring and early fall to kind of then hmm. shift that for our schedules. But the actual time is. The winter, because that's when noon. It gets probably in the center of your time zone, roughly. Noon would be sun directly overhead. That's the real actual time. And the idea of getting rid of the switch is fine with me. But the idea of picking the wrong time seems silly. And people are like, "Oh yeah, but we prefer that time." But it's all arbitrary because the sun doesn't know when our schedules are. So just you can, yeah, you can
1: you can make it whatever you want. Right.
0: Make a nine to five day, an eight to six day, or, or ten to six day if, if that's your problem. Like. The idea that we're going to keep it the wrong or the the fake time, in my opinion, and history's opinion is seems ludicrous to me instead of just picking our schedule. So, yeah, I think the switching is dumb, but I equally think that picking the one we like better when it's all completely arbitrary is just as dumb. Anyway, rant over. (laughs) Yeah, there's
1: a uh, so I live in Arizona, which does not have daylight savings. Oh, correct. And I got to tell
0: you, it's it's pretty awesome. Well, and actually, yeah, and, and, I'm, and I'm pretty sure they're, they're, I think they're with me. They are always the, what win- well, would be the winter time. It, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're always on the real time. I don't think they've done the thing where they've switched to the, you know what I'm saying? They don't switch, but I think it's they stay on the time I'm talking about, where noon in the center of that time zone would be overhead year-round, roughly speaking. Obviously, I'm
1: looking it up right now because I don't know
0: if it's if the... Uh,
1: it could be the other way? It's always standard time. It's always Mountain Standard time. Exactly, exactly,
0: daylight, Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So it's it's always right. So yeah. it's
1: never it's never daylight time. It's always Mountain Standard. So that Mountain Standard will it's the same as Pacific Daylight Time, which is why Arizona switches back and forth.
0: R- right, which kind one of. it's it? No, right, exactly, because it's not switching. It in effect switch it effect switch when neighboring states switch. It matches with yeah. Yes, yes, but that's everybody else's problem. So Arizona is actually doing right. what I would agree with. That it's right. not the fake time, but it's uh, not changing either. Yeah. So, yeah. Good job, right. Arizona.
1: <laughs> and there's a, uh, I, I don't know if you, uh, well, I know you watch CGP Gray on YouTube. Yes. Um, but he has a video about daylight savings time where he uh, talks about, you know, so Arizona doesn't observe daylight savings time, but there are certain. Uh, Indian reservations in Arizona that do, mm. but then there are certain chunks of other Indian tribes in those reservations that don't. And <laughs> so he draws, he like shows us on a map and then he draws this line. He's like, this is a hundred mile stretch. You know, if you drove along the stretch a hundred miles, you would have to change your watch seven times <laughs> like, back and forth between the time zones. He's like, this is ridiculous. Just nobody, nobody changed time.
0: <laughs> yes. T- time zone inception kind of thing there. Yeah okay so the the movie no this is this is gonna be a long episode (laughs) so the movie hugo it's based on a book and i i think the idea is really really clever so the idea is you have this kid who and we kind of see a couple flashbacks to kind of figure out how he got here but basically he's he's well the actor's 14 years old i'm not sure how old the character is supposed to be but he's you know he's he's a young adolescent who lives in a train station in paris and i kept forgetting to look up the exact one so he is in charge of setting the clocks but actually his uncle was in charge of setting the clocks and his uncle's kind of just ran off so the kid still does it because he's technically an orphan and he's afraid that you know you mentioned sasha Baron cohen is who's the Oh.
1: They call him the station. Yeah, they call him a station inspector. I,
0: inspector. I inspector is the he's term. He's actual.
1: Yeah. Because I don't think he's a cop because he keeps calling the actual police on the phone. He's just kind of like a security guard for the station, isn't he? Okay,
0: that's probably a good way to say it. So, yes. And anyway, so the kid is worried that he'll be captured and turned into an orphanage because he technically doesn't have any adult guardianship at the moment. So he he knows if he keeps the clocks running correctly, it won't raise suspicion that something's wrong and they will end up discovering him. So he has to kind of then steal food from the station during the day, which... I don't ever actually explain how his uncle got food, because he's basically just living in his uncle's old apartment, kind of within the ceilings and then within the clockwork. Which, again, is a really cool aesthetic, and I'd I'm fascinated. I'd be fascinated to learn what's the actual setup there, or what was the actual setup in the 30s. Was there a person who kind of lived there and was in charge of the clocks, or is that just kind of a neat invention that looks really cool on film? Yeah, I guess not that you would know, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I would also be intrigued to find. Out that. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and then so, in addition to the inspector, his other antagonist is the old man in charge of a little shop, little toy store in the train station. So, very similar to you know big train stations and big cities in the U.S. You just kind of have a lot of shops because there's so much foot traffic that it makes sense that all these little shops spring up within the stations themselves. So, there's this old man that works at, and of course, it's played by Ben Kingsley. Works at the toy shop, and Hugo is working on fixing a an automaton. Basically, it looks like a robot, but it's not electric again. So it's basically a giant clockwork android kind of thing. They call an automaton, right. and he, it's it's kind of his last uh, relic of his father who who died not too long ago. Because when they flashback, he's still about the same age. So within the last few years, his his dad died in an explosion in a museum, and this is kind of the last thing he has from his dad. So he's kind of obsessed with making this thing work and the toy store with all its little mechanical toys is the perfect place to steal gears and so he's stealing gears from ben kingsley's character and gets caught and ben kingsley steals his notebook which has the notes to it looks like his father's notes on how to get the automaton to maybe work but they don't really know because it's just kind of a work in progress because they just found it in a museum and right. ben kingsley steals the notebook and is actually really, really upset about what he sees in the notebook. And Hugo is fortunate in that he's able to befriend Ben Kingsley's oh, not not stepdaughter, but basically the ward. It's God it's, she, God. it's his she's goddaughter. goddaughter. Yeah, it's his goddaughter. Who's who? Her parents yeah. are gone as well, so he's raising her. And so, and she's the same age as Hugo, so he's able to befriend her and kind of use her as a liaison to either get his notebook back or just kind of see what's going on. And she even said that she calls a uh, Big character Papa George. And that, that's kind of all we know him as until later in the film, which we've already kind of spoiled. Uh, so it's all kind of just figuring out how can get this Android going. Uh, she actually ends up having the key that gets it moving. And it draws out a picture of the famous scene from, oh, uh, what's the movie called? Trip to the Moon or something, something like I that. Sure.
1: A trip to the moon. A trip yeah. to the
0: moon, where it's it's a picture of the moon with a rocket landing in its eye, and the automaton, after it draws this, actually signs the name George Melies. And Hugo's friend it was, it was Chloe Grace Moretz. I actually forget her character's name, but... She's like, well, George Melies—that's Papa George's name.
1: So this this might sound a little nitpicky, but just let me explain. Uh, so Do it, it. you said it's a, a rocket lands in his eye. It's actually a cannon shell. It did carry
0: people in it. Oh, but oh, but uh, as far as uh, but it's techno- technology, yes, a rocket actually fired has out of a yes, a rocket is self propelled, right?
1: Right. So it's it's a cannon shell fired out of a cannon. That's important because so they they mention well Hugo talks about how he and his dad used to read. Jules Verne books. Right. And Jules Verne wrote a book called From the Earth to the Moon, where the first astronauts go to the moon in a giant cannon shell. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jules Verne wrote a novel in 1865 saying... We'll probably go to the moon someday over 100 years before the first actual moon landing. But yeah, but he he instead of using a rocket, which he wouldn't have really known about, he predicted that they would get shot there in a giant cannon.
0: Interesting. And uh, and you can see that making more sense, too. And now you, know, you, had, you would have had fireworks that would have been, in theory, the beginnings of kind of rockets of sorts that you can basically light an end and have it project off that way. But the idea of upscaling right. that would probably seem less likely than just making a big explosion and firing a projectile. But, yeah, that's, that's, that is an important distinction that, uh, honestly, I just kind of hadn't intellectually even thought about for part of this. So, yes, it is an large artillery shell in the moon's eye, not a rocket. <laughs> right. Good call. So they want to go show their discovery to Papa George, who we've now learned is George Melies, which technically to the audience, if you aren't familiar, is you don't really know who that is yet. So it's just but we now know his name, which if you are a film history buff, you would know who George Melies is. And we will definitely get to that. So they show it to his wife first. And she's like, no, 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 he can't discover this. And anyway, kind of everything kind of all comes to a head. And they found actually a box of all his old sketches from all the movies he had done. George Melies was an early film director who, in real life, had kind of fallen into financial ruin and was working in a toy store in a train station in Paris. So that part's real. Basically, everything in the movie about George Melies himself is pretty close to accurate. But the character of Hugo is fictitious, and I think even the character of the goddaughter is fictitious, or kind of an amalgamation of a couple other characters, that granddaughters that may have lived with him. But the George Méliès stuff is pretty darn close to to correct, which is kind of neat that this famous film director from the late 1800s, early 1900s basically had just kind of ended up not being financially viable, ends up selling everything off. And is kind of forced to just, you know, use his last little bit of money to open a train station. Is just kind of very down on everything. And it would have been kind of heartbroken to see his own work. And then what we get in the movie is also a version of what happened in real life where they kind of convince him that, like, no, there are still people who appreciate your work and would like to know about you because now we're into the 1930s and movies are becoming a bigger thing. We've already had the first Oscars in the US. And so. In in the movie, and it looks like this guy was fictional too. The kids run across a book on the history of film and run into just happen to run into the author, of course, who is a huge Georges Méliès fanboy who just assumed because he disappeared that he died in the war or something, and actually kind of times out, which I
1: thought was kind of interesting. Like I I wonder if that if that happened in real life more often than we kind of hear about. You know, like at this period of time, like oh, and then you know after this year, so and so you know just kind of dropped off the map must have died in world war one like everybody else that's true that's true
0: and now obviously george Melies would have been too old to fight in world war one but again if he was but well, since he was in there france, was plenty of civilians that got smoked in world war one exactly I too. and especially being in france where a lot of the action was happening yes right yeah because i think he was born in like the 1860s right so he was definitely he was we would have been an old man by the time this come this came around oh uh Let me verify real fast. Yeah, yeah, because I I actually don't have his age pulled up here. Actually, I probably do. Edit
1: this out. Yes, he was born in
0: 1861. (laughs) Okay. Um, But, yes, so similar to what we get in the end of the film, they have this kind of showing. They kind of pull – oh, that was the whole thing in the movie too. He had assumed all of his old movies had been destroyed – and right. to his, and the, and the guy in the film who's kind of the historian, it's like, no, I, I, I have one, and I would like to show it to you. And that is a pretty cool moment when you basically kind of show a movie from you know almost three decades earlier that the director had thought gone forever. And that's that. I don't know. It's hard not to get emotional when you're kind of seeing that. And uh, and so yeah, the, the in, in real life, and I think they mentioned it in the movie as well. George Melies directed about five hundred movies, which is insane. I mean, they were, they're were they not, you know, the
1: two-and-a-half-hour right. epic blockbusters that we have today, but still, like, right. yeah, five, 500 works of anything, you know, art-wise, is, that's just crazy.
0: Yes, and for our purposes here in film history, and not to do a com- complete, especially since we kind of went over with some early stuff, but a complete, you know, rehash of film history here, but George Melies is super, super important for the history of film not because he's necessarily the first, and the first gets kind of hazy with so many people doing similar things all over the world at the time, but basically, he was the driving force for turning the technology of moving pictures into narrative stories. Now, and just think about right. that for a second. So, he didn't invent the technology, but he's basically the guy who made movies movies like before that it was yes. just like oh hey let's just watch some pictures and isn't it neat that we can see a train moving on screen or a guy pointing a gun at the camera and firing like that's neat george is like wait why not tell stories in this new medium
1: right and they even they even talk about it in um in the movie you know that when he first sees it's like a it's like at a sideshow he sees the yes. first the first time he ever sees a movie and he asks to buy a camera and they're like hey man like don't worry about it This No one's going to care about movies in a couple years,
0: right? It was just kind of it was just a neat little trick that we could do, like in the kind we can can just kind of make it look like images are moving isn't that neat? He was like, no, 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 this is a thing. I'm going to make this. And then he also
1: he also uses his eye for magic tricks and like illusions to then revolutionize like special effects too
0: which we haven't mentioned that's how he got started so his early career was as a stage magician and he was very big on the spectacle and doing all kinds of tricks to fool the audience and very very elaborate things for the late 19th century and he then used yes a lot of that passion and know-how into film and then so in addition to being the guy who basically I don't want to say invented because it gets tricky to kind of pinpoint who exactly invented stuff. But the guy who was a major driving force for popularizing the idea of narrative film was also the pioneer of special effects.
1: Right. And doing things like cutting things in and using forced perspective and using, you know, puppets or yeah, just it's stuff that you frankly wouldn't even realize was
0: possible at that time right with basically having himself on camera on you know you got you got the shot of the movie it's like oh it's it's seven copies of george himself acting all different and they all had it on the screen at once like i remember watching like tv shows in like you know from the 80s and 90s where like oh yeah so if they're gonna have a character play two or an actor play two different characters on screen at the same time it was kind of tricky and they would only, you know, they'd have to have like a line on the screen to make the cut to where it would look smooth. This guy was doing it in like 1900 and doing seven yeah. copies of himself without those lines. because he's only doing it in camera as opposed to right. they, they were filming it. It was just kind of the method they were using to film. Yeah. He was colorizing film by hand. He was oh, doing, yeah. you know, doing cuts to where it's like, Oh, we're going to kill the skeleton with a sword. And then actor holds, and you show this in the movie actor holds skeletons move out. And then we have a little pyrotechnic comes in, has a flash of smoke and we recontinue the film and he's doing it in camera, so He's not even editing some of that stuff after the fact it was in the camera, stop the camera, guess. Basically they had to like rewind it sometimes too, and just kind of use metronomes to make sure they were doing all this stuff. And just in the camera itself, creating these elaborate special effects well over a hundred years ago that again, the movies today, you wouldn't say hold up in the sense that they're kind of boring because we don't really appreciate that stuff anyway. But at the time, so, so innovative. And you just don't have movies like you do today without Georges Méliès 100 years ago. Right.
1: And uh, when they're watching his film reel, that's one of the things, I forget who says it, but one of them says, oh, like, it's in color. And uh, his wife says, oh, yeah, you know, we we hand-colored every single frame by hand, like yes. painted it. Yes, Because earlier in the movie, they do go to a movie theater, they sneak in oh, right. to watch the movie uh Safety Last.
0: Oh, the Harold um, Lloyd is, thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, which is famous for the the Harold Lloyd dangling off the clock uh, yes. shot, which is another, you know, pioneering special effects thing. Even today, you you can go watch like YouTube videos of people, you know, deconstructing how exactly that shot was set up and everything.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a forced perspective thing, I think, where he's actually hanging yeah. over a safe roof, and then they shoot it from an angle that makes it look like he's dangling over nothing. Right, and uh of yeah. course, that's kind of neat too, because Hugo himself dealing with the clocks and having to hang out at that clock to escape from the inspector at one point was almost kind of a little uh callback to seeing Harold yeah. Boyd do it. Yeah,
1: yep. yep, it's like a little like a little nod. Yeah. And then um, they also—I forget when—they have the montage where they show you know different like clips of movies from that time period, and they show like Charlie Chaplin, yes, and they show Buster Keaton, and they actually uh, one of the first uh, little clips in that montage is Buster Keaton sitting on the uh, the locomotive in uh, in the movie The General, Correct. which I think. I'm pretty sure we watched that in your mom's class.
0: That would be correct. And uh, what's funny is she actually just told me a couple of days ago that if we do an American History 100 and I don't include the general for the Civil War, I'm she's going to disown me. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because apparently it's like based on a true story. That, and that, and that's exactly what she said. Up.
0: She's like, it's based on a true story. You have no reason not to do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> i like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and this just because it came to mind just now, and it's a movie that we're not gonna have time to get to in our series here, and maybe we can work it in if we do an American history one hundred, but the film Chaplin from the early nineties with Robert Downey Jr. as Charlie Chaplin is really, really good and would actually kind of probably be a, a nice movie for this. And, and, like I said, it probably will be one I try to work into an American history 100 if we ever do that. But you just kind of have Chaplin himself with the history of film and going from kind of, you know, stage performance and silent film into the talkies it deals with him during world war two right, or pre world war two. When a lot of Americans were sympathizing with the Nazi movements and Charlie Chaplin was actually almost like socially ostracized because he was an outspoken opponent of Hitler Pre World War ii which was not considered necessarily cool in mainstream circles in the U.S., they were kind of actually cool with what he was doing because we didn't know the extent of the evil that was going along with it. Anyway, so I, I highly recommend Chaplin, and hopefully we'll get to it uh, one day. So, anything else on the guess on the film or George Miley is himself?
1: Yeah, I did have one thing. This is like super minor, but in the scene where Hugo goes to the toy booth and uh, George makes him fix the broken toy mouse. Yes. In the the next shot, when he winds it up and lets it go, I couldn't tell if it was computer animation to make it look like stop motion animation, but it definitely looked like stop motion animation. And I I just I wonder if there was like a a kind of a nod to oh, you know yeah. the pioneering of practical effects by George Melies. By having this shot in the movie, because it's it's not like the whole movie is stop motion or that Correct. there's a bunch of sequences. It's just this one little, it's like maybe a five second shot of this mouse, you know, driving around on the on the table at his shop.
0: Yeah, that was interesting, and it's almost kind of oh, not jarring because it's not that big a deal, but it seems out of place. I thought actually, it, even watching it a second time, I was like, oh, it seems a lot of place. But again, it's kind of just more for the fun of a kids movie. I thought it looked like a computer generated version of stop motion but that actually kind of seems silly because wouldn't it be way cheaper just to actually do stop motion real quick i think it would be well
1: easier maybe to animate it because it's just a tiny little mouse and it's a five second shot but well i mean yeah i guess why why go to the why go to the trouble of making that aesthetic choice if you're gonna animate it on a computer if you're gonna animate it on a computer you know i, I would imagine there'd be a lot more of it in the movie
0: yeah true but yeah, yeah, it is kind of interesting. And I yeah, I think it just kind of aesthetically does kind of, I guess, fit with more kind of an old school mindset to film editing, I guess. But oh, of course, there's plenty of CG within this movie, obviously. Right. Uh, a, a couple of quick notes here. So his wife, they do kind of correctly note that the woman he's married to at the time here was one of the actresses from his films. But what the movie doesn't really get into is that this was his second wife who actually was kind of his mistress at the time when they were actually filming the movies or after they were kind of done filming the movies. She was his mistress for for a lot of years. And at the time this movie was made, they had actually been married for about four years. Or by the time this movie was set, they'd only been married for about four years. And the movie kind of implied that they'd had this decades-long relationship, which they had, but she was his mistress, who he was cheating on his first wife with. And they also don't really talk about uh, uh, his kids that he had had with his first marriage. And I don't think he actually had kids with uh, this other woman, which, again, if they didn't get married until they were older, it's, it's unlikely that they had kids together. But, again, the, the the movie being for Kids doesn't get into all that because it would have just been kind of messy. And so I, I don't necessarily fault them for that, but just uh, worth a note. And this is a little bit out of order here, but I did think this was a, a line worth mentioning. I actually got this from – I was watching I, – I told you all, uh, Crash Course – uh, they have all those history stuff on Crash Course and there's one on uh, yeah. film history. And I saw there was a really interesting line when you're talking about the beginnings of film. And uh, the guy on the video said, no one set out to invent movies, which I think is just kind of important to note that it, it was just kind of, an accident of technology and, you know, it kind of took a lot of different moving pieces and different people kind of taking new inventions different ways. No one was saying, wouldn't it be neat if we could turn moving pictures into narratives? Cause obviously even right. George Melies, who we just said was one of the big people who made that happen. It had never occurred to him to deal with images or moving images until he saw someone else do it. So it just, it kind of just took a lot of different people taking things a lot of different directions and so movies were not necessarily the goal even when we started dealing with moving images it just kind of happened over the decades and people were deciding oh what if we did it this way what if we did it this way which is very kind of interesting so um oh i do have one other small little note here we we're, were talking about watches and of course one of the big lines in bill and ted's is ted don't forget to wind your watch <laughs> so it, it kind of ties back to what we're talking about with clocks and of course we get the time stuff in general but it, that's actually always kind of confused me because in 1989 so quartz watches don't need wound right it would have to have been an old right. spring-loaded watch right that he just kind of yeah. had must have inherited from his family so you only need wind to wind a watch if it's not quartz and it, which means it was you know probably pretty darn old or so. all right i guess i don't know how do they actually still make windable watches today i don't know i'd be kind of curious that
1: well i'm sure they do i'm sure you can get But not obviously by necessity, but I'm sure that there are still people who make it more of like as an art form.
0: And just like you can, you know, buy a sword today. Not that you're probably really going to need it for battle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah. Okay. And obviously I like to bring in uh, old Bill and Ted to this project whenever I can because they're they're very important in world history. (laughs) Yes. Oh, okay. So here was the other thing I wanted to talk about. It's actually kind of perfect that Martin Scorsese was the director of this film. And I don't know if you're familiar to the extent of which film preservation is a passion of Martin Scorsese's. So the idea that, so it actually was a real thing that, so a lot of these early films, they were lost. They were built on, or they were, they were filmed on stock that just didn't last through the ages. They would just literally deteriorate. Or I forget if it was in the film that they mentioned it or if it was actually in the special features I watched, but, So when George had kind of lost a lot of his money, he was forced to sell his films, but not in the idea that he was selling them, selling the rights or selling the actual films to be distributed. No, the celluloid itself that they were filmed on had valuable value because it could be melted down into the constituent chemicals and reformed into shoes. And so he had to sell the celluloid. Right that his films were on to just make any kind of money that he wasn't able to make off the films themselves and that was like the money he opened the toy shop with and anything anyway so they kind of thought they were lost so scorsese is one of the leaders of kind of the effort that continues to today to find these old films and make sure they are preserved whether digitized or you know treated like you would old art and just kind of trying to restore the actual physical film roles themselves and so Initially, we had thought most of Melies' stuff was gone completely in the movie. I think they mentioned they were up to about eighty. Was that is that right that they had found of his five hundred?
1: Yeah, that's at, at the yeah eighty eighty of five hundred.
0: And I, and, I, and I think up to like our present day, it, it's actually I think over two hundred of Melies' films uh, now now are found have found to exist. And uh, a quote from the special features on the Blu Ray I watched talked about every year they find a couple more. So we're still finding like you clean out some, you know, warehouse in Vienna where a closet hadn't been touched in decades and they're finding film reels and so they're still discovering some of these old old films and are then making an effort to preserve them. So again, Scorsese like he gets emotional about this. It's it's actually pretty neat to hear him talk about this stuff. He considers it super super important. Of course he's dedicated his life and career to film, but just the idea that he is super passionate about film history and the importance of preserving these early, early films for, for posterity and just kind of as a respect for those early filmmakers, which he obviously shares a, a kinship with. So I thought that was kind of neat and definitely worth a mention. So yeah, we are a little longer than we expected for a bonus episode, but I thought it was super important since this whole idea of this project is that we are talking about history in film and how obviously you can watch history unfold in movies throughout time how perfect is it to be able to talk about the history of movies as part of world history and then we got a movie like hugo that gave us the opportunity to do that so thanks for listening and again we'll pick up right where we left off on tuesday